Podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12. Verses 25 through 29, Hebrews 12, verses 25 through 29. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. There, all through Hebrews, you realize that the writer here is simply a brilliant, brilliant man, uh, one of the great, great thinkers. And he, in this passage, as he does so much in the book of Hebrews, using the most elegant, beautiful Greek that's to be found in the New Testament, he... Um, he, he gathers in gigantic ideas, and in these few verses, he really brings before us the whole sweep and purpose and really conclusion of history and the kingdom of God. It, I, I've, I've thought so many times this week, there's no way I, I can begin to climb this mountain. There's no way I can hold this before you in, in all of the majesty and the and the effectiveness of this passage. So I, I, I pray I won't stand in the way of its glory. That's all I'm praying for, is not to stand in the way of it. But there are things in, in, in this writer could be said the same as what Peter says of Paul, that in Paul, some things are hard to understand. And so in this passage, because he's going to so many blocks of ideas in the Old Testament, and pulling from so many passages, we'll have to dig in a little bit. So I'm just urging you from the start to uh, bear with me. Uh, I think it will be 
immensely fruitful in your life and in my life as we give ourselves to this. Now, last week we dealt with verse 25, so we're not going to focus, or two weeks ago, we're not going to focus on verse 25. Uh, But there was the contrast there of the speaking from Mount Sinai and the speaking from heaven. That is the speaking from really basically within the uh, very holy of holies. The speaking through Jesus Christ, the speaking through the very precious blood of Christ and all the beauty of the new relationship that we have with God. So if we neglect God speaking to us in the middle of his salvation that he's worked out in Jesus Christ, what hope is there? It's one thing to refuse Mount Sinai. It was a terrible thing to refuse Mount Sinai, as the Israelites did in the wilderness and a whole generation fell. He says, oh, that, that is nothing compared to refusing the voice of God now that speaks to us through Jesus Christ, through the offering of his own son. To refuse that voice, what hope is there? It would be very small what judgment fell upon the Israelites versus what judgment would fall upon us if we refuse God speaking through his son. Then he plays off of that in verse 26, and he says, At that time, that is, at the time of Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. So we've got a contrast of the shaking of the earth then, and then we'll, we'll go into the rest of the verse. He's promised, and he quotes now from Haggai, chapter 2, verse 6, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. So the question is, what does this shaking mean? And what's the contrast he's drawing between the shaking of the earth and now, once more, he will shake the heavens. And everything else will be shaken except one thing remains, and it's pretty obvious, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And how does this apply to these Hebrews, these Jewish believers who were in danger of turning away from Christ And returning, if it were possible, to worship Yahweh through Judaism. And of course, his argument all along is if you abandon the Messiah that Yahweh has sent, you've abandoned Yahweh. However, you may think that you're worshiping Yahweh. You've abandoned Yahweh because you have refused the voice of him who warns from heaven. So, let's first look then at the shaking At that time, at that time, his voice shook the earth. Now, this writer engaged with the Greek version of the Old Testament, not the Hebrew version. He's always quoting the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in that translation, the the passage in Exodus really doesn't refer to the shaking of the earth. So what he is doing is taking from the general thought of the poetry of the Old Testament, because the poetry, as you'll find it in, for instance, the book of Judges, when Deborah uh, sings a song after her victory, and then the Psalms, in several places, celebrate Mount Sinai, they speak of God shaking the earth at the time of the giving of the law. So that's the background here. Now, he just says it in a phrase... But there's a rich 
uh, rich historical background in the, the describing of that event on Mount Sinai as a shaking of the earth. Listen to Deborah. And here's Deborah celebrating a victory in her day in the judges. But she naturally goes back to Mount Sinai and shows that when God established his kingdom, it shook the earth in judgment. The nations were already shaken and were going to be judged. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord. I will sing, I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, and this is a, uh, the indication of Mount Sinai, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. The clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Psalm 68 speaks in the same way. Lord, when you went out before your people and marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked before God, the one of Sinai. The same thing can be seen in Psalm 77. And in that place, not only does he speak about the earth quaking, but he refers to Moses and Aaron leading them through the waters. Now, what does all of this mean, this shaking at Mount Sinai that is constantly celebrated? Well, it's, it has to do always shaking with judgment. Shaking has to do with judgment. And generally, the shaking of judgment in Scripture is, is directed to the nations. It's directed to those who would oppose God and oppose his people. Though, as we'll see, his own people, if they reject Yahweh, will get caught up in that same shaking and judgment. Okay? But the shaking and judgment is declared against all of the nations. And you'll see the association in these passages that I'll briefly read. And that this is more reading from different verses than we usually do, but I'm trying to show you where, where his thought is at this point. For instance, in 2 Samuel 22, David is, is uh, referring to an event in which he was saved from the Lord in distress. He said, in my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I called from his temple. He heard my voice. My cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. So in his rescue of David, it's described in terms of the whole earth shook like this. Now, not literally, but it's a metaphor for the judgment of God that came against David's enemies. And David was delivered in this shaking of the enemies. He, of course, stood firm. He was safe and protected as God shook his enemies to pieces. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 9, verse 13, we read this. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And the same thing in Isaiah chapter 24. So anger and wrath are, are, are symbolized in the shaking of the earth. So what, what is being said in that first phrase when he says, at that time his voice shook the earth, it means that at the establishment of Israel, the nations were shaken. Egypt was shaken 
therefore Israel was brought out of Egypt, the land of Canaan was going to be shaken and surrounding kings that stood in the way of, and, and attacked God's people. They would be shaken and judged. And so the establishment of God's people and their safety means judgment upon those who despise Yahweh. Now. He says, then, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now, here I would ask you to turn with me to the Old Testament, just barely inside the Old Testament to the book of Haggai. And that's on page. Two, uh, I'm sorry, seven hundred and ninety one, if you're using that blue Bible, Haggai. Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, just three books back. Important that we see this in its context, I think, so we have some understanding of what what he is referring to and then how it would apply to the Israel, uh, the, these Jewish believers. Verse six of Haggai two. This is exactly where he's quoting from, but you'll notice how he changes the, the verse to suit his own needs. He, he knocks out a couple of words and puts the heavens last so as to emphasize then it was the earth, now it's the heavens, to show it's more sweeping and, and complete now. But this is the quote that he's taking. Thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, there's exact Greek phrase taken into Hebrews, In a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, the context of Haggai is that the people and and boy, you're getting more lessons than you ever wanted to this morning. But the book of Haggai, the context is that the people of Israel were in exile. They've now been brought back and they are looking at this flimsy, dinky, what one commentator calls a shed compared to the former temple that they had known. So they're sitting here looking at this structure and they're not encouraged. They're not happy. Their, their arms are just saying, is this it? You know, it, it's, it's like what happened when Kay, she lived in her uh, home for years as a child and through teenage years. And just a few years ago, her parents uh, moved out into a small cottage and rented it to try to get some money out of it. And we went back and saw it a few days ago and the, uh, a few weeks ago. And the thing has just been trashed, you know, it's. It's not even the house. It's, it's, you just can't believe it's the same house. And that's kind of how they felt at this point. But notice the promise. The promise of judgment. I will shake the nations and this house will be filled with glory, says the Lord of hosts. He even says the treasures of all nations shall come in. Now, there's a literal, uh, a literal fulfillment of this, but it points to something much bigger or else the writer of Hebrews wouldn't quote it. Right. 
He wouldn't quote that something's going on now that has to do with what God said there in Haggai. That there is a further shaking to, to occur. Not just that at Mount Sinai, but a larger, more cataclysmic shaking of the nations. But he's obviously taking this idea uh, from Haggai. And it's interesting that in the very next few years, the Persians, which were in charge at this point, got overthrown by the Greeks. The Greek Empire of Alexander got broken up. And then after that, the Romans come in all before the time of Christ. Just a few centuries. And so you read later in uh, this same chapter, chapter verses 20 and after of how he's going to shake heavens and earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms and destroy the strength of the kingdoms and overthrow the chariots and their riders later here in Haggai chapter two. So there's a literal fulfillment. And during this process, the temple became more glorious by far than it ever had been before. The temple of Herod was a magnificent thing. It was one of the wonders of the earth at that point, a glorious thing, of course, destroyed in 70 A.D. So but at that point, the temple represented the earthly kingdom of God. It represented the the centerpiece or the. The, the focus of God's kingdom on earth. And so here's the, the pressing principle at that point is that God will so work in the nations in his judgment and providence that his people will prosper. Not necessarily uh, in terms of silver and gold, etc., but the principle that God will bring out judgment eventually, continually, and ultimately and finally upon the nations. And his people will be preserved and made stronger and stronger in the last day. His kingdom is all that will stand. That's the principle that's being laid out here. The judgment and shaking of everything else that can be shaken until only that which remains. And it is only the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so that this doesn't seem like a little minor thing about the treasures flowing into the house. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 21, speaking in terms of the new heavens and the new earth and the final age of the kingdom of God. The city, this, the new Jerusalem, has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it in the daytime, for there will be no night there. Its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And so the point is that the ultimate donation of all the earth to the benefit of God's kingdom. You see, it was in a minor way, in an earthly way, with the kingdom so benefiting uh, the temple so that this seeming little shack or shed that you are, are so worried about will actually become something glorious because of how I will deal with the nations. You're not just under the, uh, the thumb of the Persians. I can wipe out the Persians and then I can wipe out the Greeks and then I can wipe out the Syrians and the Egyptians with the Romans and then the Romans going to fall... You get the picture. God is in absolute control. And in the working and the tumult and the wars and confusion of all the nations and whatever may happen, 
he is building up, preserving, blessing his people to the final day when nothing will be remaining but the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what this writer is tapping into, you see, by saying that uh, he spoke there on earth in chapter 12, verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. You see, it, it will be complete and final. And so in verse 27, back to Hebrews 12, he says, at that time, uh, in verse 27, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And so in the prophets, as they spoke about the day of the Lord, the coming, the final day of the Lord, and of course there was a a beginning of that in the coming of Jesus Christ and the judgment that fell on Jerusalem. And, and you could say at various periods there are little foreshadowings and previews of the final day of the Lord. It's not just one day. It's, it's any coming of God in judgment or blessing. But it's always pointing to this final, ultimate day of the Lord. And so Joel 2.10 uses the common... Uh, uh, Metaphor, not only of the shaking of the earth, but the sun and the moon falling. And we usually read that literally as we would even in, in Matthew 24 when it speaks of later da latter days. But it generally indicates the falling of kingdoms because the moon was that which rules by day. We read in Genesis 1 and the sun rules by uh, moon rules by night and the sun rules by day. So they were symbols of rule, symbols of political rule and power. And so when they fall, it indicates the falling and the failing and the crushing of kingdoms and political power and all the pride of the earth and the strength of the earth being cast down. And so we could read literally a dozen passages like this. But just to give you one example, Joel 2, verse 10, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. Who, he who executes his word is powerful. The day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Later in Joel 3, Nahum 1 speaks about the vengeance and justice of God. The shaking of the earth and the striking down of the sun and the moon. Now, what all does this mean as he's speaking to these Jewish believers? Here's this rich theology of the Old Testament that speaks of the continual shaking of the nations. There was a shaking at Mount Sinai, but now uh, in Haggai, he says there's going to be a continual shaking of the nations. He even says later in Haggai that uh, speaks of the seed of David and how he will be raised up. Certainly a final re reference to Jesus Christ. Well, the problem is that these Jewish believers we're about to abandon the ship of Jesus Christ, of Messiah. Because of persecution, because of the danger of losing all their possessions, being cast into jail, and losing their own life, 
They were in danger, danger of apostasy, of turning away from Christ and finding the safety of some other version of a religion that would preserve their lives. But the writer is stressing to them that if you leave this ship, you're going into that which is being shaken and judged on the earth. There is only one place of security, one place that will not be shaken. It is the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. Can you imagine someone abandoning ship? On a dark night in the cold northern waters and they've got no life jacket. They have no life raft. And they're saying, abandon ship. And they're over the side. That's the picture of these Jewish believers. For fear of the earthly persecution, they would jump into the terrible waters of the judgment of God himself. And as Jesus, in the context of the coming persecution of his people, he says, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who can cast both body and soul in hell. And so he's urging them that he who spoke and, and shook the earth at the time of Mount Sinai is now shaking in a a larger way, in a final way. We're already seeing the beginning of it in the time of Christ and it continues throughout the whole life of the church to that final day when all that remains is the kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we, we are in the storm shelter and, and the tornado, the hurricane of God's judgment is all around. And it doesn't look that way. We, we talked about this Thursday morning at the, our session prayer, and, and you've probably seen the far side of this, but I had thought, I, I, this is one of those things where my weird mind was out there before his weird mind, but um, I, I had used this as an illustration years ago about uh, what would happen if you're there taunting and, and making a, uh, a baby bear cub cry loudly. And you're laughing and maybe two children are, are hurting, two teenage boys are just hurting this baby and taunting it and, and uh, torturing it. And you wouldn't sit there and you'd feel sorry for the bear, but you would really feel sorry for them with this baby crying out to the top of its lungs because you're thinking, you two boys are dead. You're just dead. You, you're just crazy. You better, you better run right now. Maybe you'll get away. Isn't that interesting how you look at that and you think, here's the baby bear being persecuted and hurt and crying out, but you're already trembling for what could happen to them because they're touching the mama bear's baby. And you're already looking around and wondering, and you, you want to back away because you know you'll get killed. She'll kill anything around that baby bear. That's the feel, you see, of all of Scripture, of God in His fierce Desire for his people. We must understand that when he calls himself the shepherd of God's people. And now you've heard me refer to this before, but they've described those shepherds. One guy saw them in the 19th century. Shepherds in this very area. And he says, those are some of the fiercest looking men I've ever seen in my life. They have double uh, guns in their holsters. They have big axes and rifles and they're scowling around looking for somebody just to take a bad look at my sheep and you watch what will happen. <laughs> it's not like, you know, you think nice little shepherds. <laughs> it's like, don't 
mess with the shepherd and don't touch his sheep, you know. And if you get close to him, you know, let him know, I'm not hurt, I'm not hurting anything, you know, that kind of idea. And so when he says he's the shepherd, automatically he's the warrior for his people. He's the defender of his people. And all the nations are being shaken. And he's urging them, look, the removal of things that are shaken so that only that which remains. And he says, let us be grateful that we have this kingdom that cannot be shaken. Don't abandon ship. Don't turn away from your only hope. That's why he says again and again in Hebrews, hold fast the confession of your hope. You see, hold fast to the Lord Jesus the one who saves you, the one who rescues you. Don't go to another place for safety. Don't go, and I would say this to you as well and me, don't go to another place for satisfaction, another place for honor or glory. In Him, in His kingdom, we will have all that makes life complete and engaging and fresh and that which gives constant energy and happiness and creative work and worship and relationship, He alone can give this. It's interesting when in, in Jeremiah 10, He speaks of the, the same judgment and it's in the context of idols. And, and I, it made me think of that time where the ark was taken by the Philistines and the first morning, Dagon, the pagan god, was found on his face because the ark was put in the presence of Dagon. And so they, you know, set their little god back up, you know, and Dagon's standing there again. And the next day, he's down there and his arms and his feet are cut off and his head's cut off. There's a picture of everything that's happening in the world. Everything that opposes God, everything that opposes his will in that final day, it will be cast down. And in Psalm 115, it says those who worship these idols that can't see, can't hear, can't do anything, they're powerless. You're the one that set them up on the stand. You're the one that carved them up and the other piece of wood you threw in the fire. And that's what you're worshiping. That's kind of the mockery of those idols or any idol we might have. It says those who worship them and follow them will become like them. Dead, lifeless Vain, worthless in the end, destroyed, swept up with them in the dustpan and thrown away in destruction. Now, this is a funny cartoon, but I couldn't think of a better way than the way it looks. I love the cartoon where Wiley is sawing off the branch that the roadrunner's on. You know, and the roadrunner is going to fall. And you remember what happens. He saws it off and the whole tree falls. <laughs> and there's a roadrunner just sitting there. And the reason I like that illustration is it looks like we're being sawed off. It looks like we're the ones. As it says in Romans 8, we are led about like sheep to be slaughtered. That kind of doesn't sound like the health and wealth gospel. Get it? <laughs> we are being led around as sheep to be slaughtered. And so it looks like we're the ones being destroyed, but we're the baby bears and mama bears in charge. And it's very dangerous to, to mess with baby bears. It's not that the baby bears are vindictive and they hate. No, they love. 
They love and they're trying to bring light and servanthood and, and give their lives away for the sake of other people. But what, when the sawing is completed, it's the whole tree, it's everything else that would oppose him that is finally destroyed. As it says, using the same word of shaking in Psalm 46, with which we began our service, God is in the midst of her, she shall not be shaken. Isn't that glorious? God is in the midst of her, she shall not be shaken. God will help her when morning dawns. And in the next verse, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. Same word. They're shaken. He utters his voice. The earth melts. Psalm 112, verse 6. The righteous will never be shaken. He will be remembered forever. If you want to review the kingdom that you have, look at verses 22 through 24 again. Come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, as we even have sung. And he says this, we are receiving this kingdom. It's not completed, but we even now are receiving this kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that's why we have gratitude, thanksgiving, we worship, we're, we're rejoicing, we delight in this God and what He's done for us and made us secure and safe, even if we're put to death for His sake. That's the point. And He's saying to them, you're part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken as some of these people by God's grace continue to serve Christ and they were killed by Nero. If our history is right. But they couldn't be shaken. They couldn't be shaken. And they received a kingdom. They even then were receiving it. Even then had the presence and the nourishment and comfort and delight of God in the midst of their suffering. And then they entered in. And they will be a part of the new heavens and the new earth. So you see this final statement, God is a consuming fire. It has an emphasis of a consuming fire in His judgment upon the earth. But if you abandon the Lord Jesus then that's all you have is the consuming fire of God. <clears throat> and kids, I was, uh, was in the car the other day and I, I could tell there was a wreck up front, uh, up ahead. And of course, the cars on, on the interstate were, were going very slowly. And as I got by this car, if you can imagine, here a car should be a little rectangle. The car was a V. A pure V. And this side of the car, the driver's side, was all the way touching the other side. And all I could do as I drove by is just shudder, just tremble. Because there's no way that a person was living who, who was driving. Because there was, there was no place for him to be. And that's some of what we, we, we tremble at the fact that God is a consuming fire. And His judgment is coming upon the earth. And we should be so far from abandoning Him that we embrace Him and we're trying to make Him known to other people. We worship Him in awe. He is our Father and He's a consuming fire. He's our Daddy 
And He's a consuming fire. We don't push one or the other away. We embrace Him as He is. And we humble ourselves. And we count it the greatest privilege that we belong to this God. But I too soon love pleasing is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Shall my soul